Hi there, listener. Sarah Holmes speaking. Welcome to Learning Day, a journey to explore how we integrate learning in our everyday lives. And this is Season 2, dedicated to documenting what we've learned in 2020. Here's the sixth episode. Hi, everyone. It feels good to be back after a two-month break. After giving myself the challenge to release an episode of Learning Day every two weeks for the first three months of the year and succeeding at it, I had to take a break. First, it was going to be a month long, then it turned into two. And that's okay. I'll be honest, I did feel the guilt. I did hear the voice in my head saying, you must go back to the podcast, you must keep your promise. But the truth is that it's okay. I had to shed that layer of self-judgment and do what was right for me at that time. Now I'm back, strong and ready for another marathon. If you also have that voice in your head telling you what you must do, this episode is for you. Today's guest is Rashmi Narayana. We talked about the search for data and evidence and trusting the unknown, the journey to finding our own version of leadership and worthiness, and talking to children and everyone else about racism. I hope you enjoy our chat. Hello, Rashmi. How are you today? Yes, I'm well. Thank you, Sarah. Lovely to be here. I'm very happy you're here. And I have to double thank you. Because you signed up for this and you also signed someone else up. <laughs> yes, I did. And uh, we've already had a wonderful conversation, myself and Patricia. So thank you, Rashmi, for that double courage. Yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. Rashmi, so we met at a shared learning experience at Upfront. And I'm, I'm very happy you're here today. And your story is amazing. And I'm very excited about sharing it with the world. But before we go there, I would like to know, how would you describe yourself as a learner? I gave it some thought and I do learn through reading and then writing and mm -hmm. because I generally read a lot. And so I've realized only over the last one year, actually, is that I do synthesize what I'm learning through introspection and then writing it out. And I think that has been a huge learning for me, especially in the last year or so, because in the past I would have read, I would have thought about it a bit, chatted about whatever I've read with someone and that's it. But actually pausing and writing has been a revelation for me. Yes, this process of creating something after you've read it. And to put it on paper, you you really need to understand yes. it. Because you're not you're not making a copy, right? You are interpreting what you've learned and that's it's a completely different process from just reading it or even just saying it to someone else, which is also very helpful, but it's different for different people. What I would say is, yeah, doing something after you've read something or you had an experience, that second step of reflecting and writing it down or speaking it out loud, it's very important yes. in any learning process. Yes. yes, and I think this is something which, you know, obviously I have learned through my own coaching as well, you know, which I'm sure we'll come to where, you know, my coach was pushing me to reflect every day. She said, it's a five-minute journal, do a five-minute journal. And I found a lot of resistance to it initially, you know, saying that, oh, do I have to do five minutes? You know, I can't do it. I'm too busy. But actually, the benefits of doing it, even if you do like four or five days out of seven or, you know, a few days out of, you know, the whole week, you still start seeing the benefits in terms of it just gives you that clarity as well. So I think there's something about writing and learning, which we don't do enough in our busy worlds. 
Rashmi, in a recent Instagram post, you wrote that anything that's evidence-based makes your nerdy brain happy. <laughs> What does that mean? So yeah, so I came from a very, uh, let us say, very analytical family, very fact-based family. And I have seen the benefits and the, and the pitfalls of it, obviously, because, you know, you tend to go with fact, with what is there in print but you kind of get disconnected with what actually you want and what works for you. So I think for me, evidence is about trust. And I think for me, trust is a huge value of mine. And I would say because trust for me is almost like three layers of trust, I would say. And that is trust within myself, which is the hardest at times. Trust with the people you work with in your immediate workplace. And then, of course, your family as well. And then trusting the unknown. And I know it sounds a bit woo-woo, but actually there is... Something about trusting what you don't know as long as you are taking those steps towards that. So there are different levels of evidence in scientific research. For those who are research-based know that you know, there are different levels of evidence. A randomized control trial is the highest level of evidence. And there are various other methods. But over the years, I have realized that that is not the gold standard always because you know, there are different mm. contexts, etc. So I want to get evidence for a certain thing working or not working from people who have worked in it or people who have tried to apply it in their lives or try to promote it. That if you're promoting it, how did it work? You know, and I want to know how it works. So I do hesitate when something is not there yet. So I think if something is evidence-based, they say that even coaching for me or therapy for me is, okay, I understand talking helps, but how does it actually help in the brain, mm. right? And so for me, that aspect of neuroscience for change, neuroscience of behavior, there's something about that which really makes my nerdy heart very happy. I, I guess it's the, the conditioning from a very young age. It meets that need of mine, you know, yeah. and I'm able to now merge it with a bit of the unknown, which is not so evidence-based, but at the same time, you know, it has worked for other people. So there is evidence in that. I was going to ask you that, how this orientation for evidence-based anything helps you with the unknown. Yeah, there are different levels of evidence, right? Like, for example, somebody may say that you can communicate with the dead, for example. There are people who believe in that. And for me, that is one kind of belief, which I will say, surely you can't do that. There is no scientific evidence for that, etc., etc. So that's a kind of an evidence where, you know, you have to show me that you can actually communicate with the dead and how it works. So that's mm -hmm. one kind of evidence. But the evidence for the unknown is also in our day-to-day -day lives. For example, change. You want to change something and you are looking for markers of proof, evidence or trust. You know, okay, if I am going to change my career, who else has changed their career like me? And how did they do it? So that is a different kind of evidence. And uh, I realized that I have used, and I'm guessing quite a few of the listeners, and we all do it, I think, is about how we use evidence as a way to keep ourselves small as well, mm. to keep ourselves safe. Yes. You know? Oh, there is no evidence for that. You know, nobody, nobody like me has, who has done medicine and has gone on to work in tech and then can become a coach, can become an entrepreneur. You know, that doesn't happen. And then I start looking for evidence. Are there any other brown women, Indian women from my kind of background who have done it? And so for me, it is that kind of understanding that, okay, I need evidence, but not to keep me small, not to keep me from learning new things or learning new ways of living. Yes, that's really important what you just said that I will use the word obsession, but it's not exactly what you are describing. But 
this obsession with evidence can also be negative for us. It can also restrain us from going in the direction of uh, the less paved path, whatever we want to call mm. it. And I guess then it's about looking for evidence that we may not know about. So maybe looking harder, but also creating our own evidence. Exactly. You have to take that first step and see what happens. And then you kind of look at it and say, oh, this worked or this didn't work. And then as we know, you know, as humans, our brain is structured in such a way, our mind is structured in such a way that we always evaluate losses much harder than we evaluate our wins, right? We have an aversion to yeah. loss. And, and loss can be anything as somebody unsubscribed from my newsletter, for instance, or somebody mm -hmm. said, Why, what's the point of you taking a painting? You're not going to become a painter. You know, so that loss of almost like a dream, which you want people to understand that I'm just doing it for the sake of learning. There's something around that for me, which I'm still unpacking, which is interesting. Rashmi, you already talked a little bit about your path, but I would like you to give us more insight into that because I think it's very interesting. So you started as a psychiatrist, right? Uh, yes, I come from quite a typical South Asian family where there's a lot of high premium on education and on degrees and achievement. You have to be in the first two or three in the class or whatever you're doing is the highest kind of thing. And there's a lot of emphasis on that. There are cultural reasons and all those things, so I won't go into that, but that is the general context of it. So I did medicine, then I did psychiatry because I wanted to do pediatrics, but then I did an extra month and I realized that actually there is too much suffering in pediatrics and mm -hmm. I won't be able to take it in the long run. So then psychiatry, actually, it allowed me to be much closer to people and really... You know, you can help a person for a year and they really make a change. But then it was, I felt very, uh, almost like a bit, not trapped, maybe too strong, but I just felt stuck a bit. It was a good career. There was nothing wrong with it. It was just that I was not happy. And so I think from then on, I would say that there is this quote from Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, a poem, The Riddle of the Strider. It's, uh, and he says in the second line of it, it says, not all those who wander are lost. And I think that's when I started my wandering. I wandered to the humanitarian sector. So I joined the Red Cross because at that time we had had a couple of major disasters in India. And I think that appealed to me to be working with the community much closer because as much as psychiatry in a hospital is interesting, you do tend to see two or three categories of patients and you don't really go out to the community. So the Red Cross thing was more working with people in the community, large a number of people. So that was very interesting. Then I realized that, oh, okay, actually, there's a lot of money going into an organization like Red Cross, but all the interventions we were doing at the community level didn't seem to be led by any sort of data and evidence. Like, you know, we we're doing things because it felt nice. But actually, these this money from donors, I felt, oh, it has to be much more evidence-based. They do brilliant work, don't get me wrong. But it is just that it was not rocking my world, you know, in yes. some ways. That's when I came to London and I did my public health degree there, met some amazing people who have been for life. And then I moved into teaching. I thought, okay, I'm going to do research because, you know, I was in this pursuit of evidence. I was like, okay, if I do PhD, then I can really get some high quality data out there and make an impact. And I thought getting a teaching job would be one way towards that. So I took a teaching job. I was teaching British military personnel, which was really out there. I would have never expected, you know, to, myself to do that. But that's because of the Red Cross experience. They wanted uh, me to come on board, co-manage the course and teach the civilian perspective of military interventions in a community. The military is called out to various things like when there's a flood, when there's any other disasters, they go in and they help out, but they have to work with civilian organizations to deliver interventions. That's very interesting, Rashmi. I'm going to interrupt you there. I never thought about it. It's obvious, but I never really stopped to think about it. 
What was surprising for the military personnel about the civilians' perspective? They are very logistics-based. When the military go in, they're dealing with full-out kind of you know, setting up medical facilities or evacuation or identification of missing people. But they don't really have, I would say, the knowledge to actually do the mental health side of things because these are communities under a lot of stress. They have a lot of post-traumatic stress, etc. So even doing the things like simple, like we all know first aid, right? Like how, what do you do with first aid? But there is a concept called psychological first aid in the humanitarian sector. And so it was about working with them to make them realize that there is something called psychological first aid. This is how you can support organizations like the Red Cross to do it. And then the other aspect is resilience. You know, we always think that, oh, the person is resilient. And we take it as quite an individual concept. But actually, resilience is in the community, in the systems. So it would also teach them about, hey, you know, this is resilience in the community level. Maybe you should set up the church in a makeshift camp because religion promotes resilience in a, following a disaster, you know, okay. because you gather, people come together for a service, for instance, and you come together in your sorrow. And that is that increases your resilience. You're not alone, you know. Yes. Yeah. So I think these kind of things, they were kind of in the back of their minds, but it kind of became quite prominent like oh okay actually it's not just the mental health of my friends and my colleagues it is the mental health of the community as well and this is how we can support them that's so interesting psychological mm. first aid and yeah yeah that stayed with me and this example of the church i remember last year on the first lockdown when here portugal is a mostly catholic country mm -hmm. obviously we have people from other religions and all cult spaces let's call them that i don't know how to say that in yeah, english yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh were closed and i remember a lot of people after a while they were really requesting like let's open these spaces let's mm. open these spaces and from a very practical standpoint i'm like you can pray at home i mean let's not create another health constraint but now yes. that you are bringing that to light i'm like okay we were and are still going through a traumatic experience and these places have a, a role to play right oh yeah definitely so yeah so i think that's that was a, a big learning for me as well because i got to interact with them and actually understand how difficult it is for them also to set up logistics in a place where there's not much resources basically you know sometimes they go they go into situations where there is zero electricity zero water and and they know how to set these things up so i think it was a mutually learning experience so it was good so you were helping the military and then what happened next? Yeah, so then it didn't lead to the PhD for various reasons. Then I moved into research management in international development. So similar kind of work, but again, working with a group. It was a group based out of the London School of Economics and they were funding projects in India and West Africa, looking at mainly how do we help mothers and babies in the first 30 days of their life. They, that is the time when they're at most risk of dying in certain parts of India, in Africa, etc. So we're looking at, okay, how do we strengthen the healthcare system to help these babies survive for longer. So we're trying to look at how do we strengthen the healthcare system to make sure that we pick up these high-risk pregnancies quicker so that these children have a higher chance of surviving beyond the 30 days. And so that was very much a, a big project involving 400 villages, five partners, you know, millions of pounds of budget, etc. So that's when I was doing back and forth. Like I was in London, then I used to be in India, London, India, and it was crazy time. You know, it was a huge learning experience. I had not really, really managed people and partners at that level. So I learned a lot there. It was very satisfying. So we got some papers out, you know, the whole evidence and the data piece, etc. Mm -hmm. I kind of ticked that box 
so to say then i think uh, again i hit a ceiling i wanted to go up the leadership ladder that didn't happen and so then i negotiated with them and i did a part time mba and that was another huge learning for me in the sense that the business world really thinks so differently to the healthcare and the humanitarian world that was a huge learning for me and there i met a startup founder he was an alumni from there and then he said look i'm starting this company and do you want to join you'll be the first employee and i took a jump because i thought i love building things i love learning new things so i'm just going to start and so for the last 8 years i've been in health tech startups working as a clinician to make these products more user friendly patient friendly clinician friendly mm-hmm. that has been a massive learning as well like working with proper nerdy people like coders and developers with doctors with the business people so we may think something is good but uh, the sales people they want to know whether you can market it and whether you can sell yes. it so i think that kind of tension and everything i learned a lot so that's where i have been in the last 8 years The startup world is very alluring. It's very sexy. Like, mm, yeah. uh, oh, you know, you can do it to a startup and you can become rich very quick and learn a lot and everything. And yes, there's a lot to be said for startups. It's amazing. The energy and the kind of learning you get is quite unique. It's a unique combination. But at the same time, I realized just how male it is. It's very, very centered on men. Women get so little investment. You know, female-led startups and leadership positions as well within tech is is kind of predominantly men and predominantly white men as well. So I think that was something it was becoming increasingly apparent to me. And also the culture is very much um, hustle culture. What I call yeah. you hustle, hustle, hustle. The longer you work, the better you are. Worthiness is really dependent on how long you work. You go in at about eight thirty and you're working till eight eight thirty at night, and you're expected to even be on call. Many Mainly because yes, the companies do move at a much faster rate. That's the nature of startups. But also, it's the culture. It's like work hard or just go home kind of thing. You know that that is you. And I just was like, surely this is not the only way to build a business. That was one question I had. And the other thing I had was under this uh, kind of almost I would say cover of busyness and uh, pace and you know fast paced thing. there were a lot of practices which i didn't like especially around the way we were treating people it's important to recognize that ultimately a company is made of people so somewhere along the way we you know i was in the leadership team and we were started dealing with okay what do we do with there a lot of turnover of people etc and then we started thinking about it and we did a engagement survey you know an employee engagement survey and i could see that you know we were struggling to strike a balance between growth and sustainability and i think sustaining a business is so much dependent on people and how do we keep the good people on board that's when i realized that actually there is something about supporting your team and that's when i started using coaching with my team members and i got coaching as well so i hired a coach for myself because i was struggling with the pace and how to manage people etc so i was like you know what i'm going to invest in a coach and i think she made me realize how important it is to really first identify what drives me as a person and how i can bring that to my work we don't really think about that we just assume that there is a certain way we have to manage people and it's usually yeah. from what we learn from management books and things like that but actually you can do the same thing in your own flavor what is sara's flavor what is rashmi's flavor and that makes all the difference like how you interpret these management tools to actually put it in practice and that's when she suggested like why don't you use the coaching method with your team and i was like yeah actually i can do that and i heard a few podcasts read a few books and that was a game changer actually what you said about management books and rules it's something that our let's call her friend i think she's a friend as well our mm. common friend lauren uh, says a lot is that the all these rules are made up 
we forget about that, that someone had to create these rules. You know, we were not born with that programming in our minds. Someone invented those rules. Yes, exactly. And, and, and so if another human invented those rules, we are just as capable of inventing different rules or building on those rules and make them our own and make them better for the way we like to work, our values and everything. And sometimes I think we forget that. Very easily, very easily. Just Let's make another rule. Definitely. You know, and get some help. It doesn't have to be a coach always. It can reach out to your network, somebody who has done this before you maybe, and kind of try to look alternate views of management, I would say. I remember the first time in one of the leadership meetings, we're all sharing. A coach was in the front of us for the leadership team and we were all talking about, okay, what really, what do you believe management is? You know, what is your framework? And I said, I would love to embody the framework of Ubuntu. Ubuntu is a South African concept. In simple words, it is I am because you are in the sense that I am a leader because you give me the position as a leader. You have to identify me as a leader for me to be a leader. I am a leader not because it's a hierarchy where I can do whatever I want. It's because you come to me with your needs, your requests, and then it is my job to work with you. It's interrelational. So leadership is interrelational. So it's very much a, a community concept from more, I would say, non-Western societies. So when I said that, I, I could see there was a silence in the room. They were like, oh, that's interesting. And of course, because it was a tech world, Ubuntu is also a platform. It's a coding system as well, like Linux and other things. So they were like, oh, okay, that's why it means that. I said, yeah, that's what it means. And I think that was very interesting for me as well. That's when I realized, okay, so the penny drop for me is that oh, we are so ingrained into a particular kind of management theory, management system. Mm -hmm. It is not really serving us, but we just are so scared to explore other ways of doing because we are so focused on growth, uh, make returns for the investors. Yeah. So I think there is a tension there. I'm not saying that it's easy to do it, but I think if you're a manager of people, you can do it in your own way, in your team. And that sometimes can lead to a bigger movement. I hope you're enjoying my chat with Rashmi. And before we go back to it, here's a message from Maria, a member of the Learning Day community. I first heard about the Learning Day Reflection Sessions through my network and it actually has taken me quite a while to make the commitment and sign up. I'm so glad I did. It's quickly become one of my absolute favorite self-care rituals each week. It's such a lovely community. You can show up exactly as you are, where you're at with whatever you're thinking, whatever you're feeling, and there's no fear of trying to impress anyone or being judged. And it's just done so beautifully too. Like the playlists are amazing. <laughs> the reflection questions are always so good. So it's never the same, it never gets easy or boring. <laughs> the feeling of community and connecting with people and talking about where you're at, that's really important. I'm really grateful that I can be part of this community. Consider joining one of the weekly reflection sessions this Thursday. Go to learningday.community to learn more and sign up. Now, back to our chat. Rashmi, I would like us to go to 2020 and mm -hmm. explore what happened last year. Yeah. And so in a, in a previous conversation, you've told me that you've been shedding layers, not just in 2020, but in general in your life. Yes. And so I'm curious to, to know how that was present last year. The starting point for me would be stepping away from a nine to five job. So when you step away from a nine to five job, which brings home a salary at the end of the month, you realize just how many layers you need to shed. Basically, you negotiate each layer. And I don't know if you have seen representations where there will be you at the center and then there'll be circles around it. So the you is in the center and the circle is family. The next circle around it is friends and the next circle around it is society. Yeah. So you are at the center. And then when you give that up, you negotiate each of those layers. 
the society suddenly looks at me and says oh rashmi doesn't have a job friends are like some will be super happy for you they'll be like yes go for it you know you're trying to make a change yeah. while others it triggers something for them they'll yeah. be like are you sure what you're doing is it right have you thought about your finances have you thought about what you're going to do and then it's a family again within the family the next circle they are worried for you obviously and then some of them may be very happy for you and then finally it comes to you what you want and so for me i realized actually shedding layer should be the reverse so first strengthen what you want and that was a huge kind of brain freeze for me my brain literally froze for a few months i, I couldn't get my head around it oh my god what am i you know if i am not the head of so and so what am i right and that layers of shedding of identity to actually understand what you want is is filled with a minefield of anxiety it can paralyze you and so for me it was shedding the layers rearranging the layers and so what that means is your entire system changes and that is quite scary because my system was get into the tube get my daughter to the preschool get into the tube go to work be there by 8:30 finish work come back pick her up from daycare feed her then i feed myself go to bed get up again do the same thing all relaxation is on the weekends you have your mortgage to pay you want to save something you're planning your holidays blah blah you know all of that system which you have and then you're attending meetings you're getting feedback from your managers you're getting a lot of praise maybe even praise from other people and when you shed all that and suddenly you are looking at becoming an entrepreneur freelancer leading to an entrepreneur it completely freezes your brain and i think for me that is the layers that i have had to shed and rearrange in some ways and the process still continues because there are days like yesterday morning my daughter woke up in the middle of the night and i couldn't go back to sleep and i started worrying intensely about money oh my god when will i start making enough money and it's important to acknowledge that that okay the anxiety around money is real but at the same time the anxiety of not trying it out to do something on my own is much bigger Mm. It's that trade-off, isn't it? It's not a perfect life to be a freelancer or a, an entrepreneur. It's certainly a trade-off. There's this sentence that I'm not sure it's 100% truth at least not in my experience, but they say that you become an entrepreneur to not work 40 hours for someone else but to work 60 hours for yourself. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which it's not necessarily you don't need to work more hours always, but it is that, right? It's choosing a different kind of worry choosing a different kind of experience which from the outside may, may be a bit more difficult but it makes sense to you yeah and also i think there is another way of framing it right what type of business is worthy yes what type of business is worthy if for you 9 to 5 business is is makes you feel worthy then that's fine but make it a conscious choice I was able to make the choice I I completely recognize my privilege that I'm able to do that not everybody can do that so I, I recognize that but at the same time even within that 9 to 5 you can put certain pockets of doing what you want to do but many people don't do that because they just like oh what's the point you know because there's something about again the one thing which really annoys me a lot is productivity productivity hack I was a big consumer of that by the way so I'm a recovering productivity addict in some ways I'm now productive actually you know I'm equally productive but I have changed it to fit what productivity means for me what drives me and again I'm privileged I know I not everybody can do that but there is something about disconnecting that saying you can do it that's a challenge which I always tell my clients as well is that you can still keep your job there's nobody's asking you to give up your job but then how about setting some boundaries so that it allows yes. you to explore these other things which are not productive in the traditional way of living your life Yeah I'm like intensively nodding here right yes. now. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I tell that to 
to many of my friends who have a nine to five job. And there's a sense that things just happen to them and they yes. don't have much control when they actually can. A very good example is meetings, particularly now when everyone is working from home. It seems like meetings are a plague. They were already, but now it seems to be worse because it's much easier to have a meeting with someone. You just click on a button. And a friend of mine, she was complaining, I spend my whole day in meetings and then I need to do my work, the actual work at night. Mm. And her conclusion was, I hate remote working. Yeah, and I say, actually, remote working is not the problem. There are yeah. no boundaries. There are no processes in your company. There's no, no one is speaking up to say that that's not fine. That doesn't have to happen to you. You can take some action and try to improve that because that would actually make a lot of sense, business sense as well, that all of those people aren't wasting their time in meetings and they're actually doing their job. Yes. Yeah. So this, this idea that you can create conditions for you that make sense to you in a nine to five job. And I think what happens in companies like that, and, it, and I have been in companies as well, is where presenteeism, what I call, you know, you have to be present and therefore present means either physically or online on a Zoom call overtakes productivity. Your manager is more interested in you being online as much as possible rather than actually you delivering your work. I mean, he wants you to, he or she wants you to deliver the work, but they're not able to make that distinctions. It's so easy to say all meetings between 9 to 11 in the morning, then we have one more meeting in the evening. And in between, please do this work. But we kind of abandon that and we just say, no, actually meetings is productivity is what we think. You already told us some of the challenges and evolutions that your life has had last year. What mm. other challenges have you had to face and overcome last year? I think for me personally, because I'm a first generation migrant from India to the UK, the biggest challenge was getting my head around the new kind of framework of financial stability. So when you leave your country, home country, and you come abroad, your financial security is quite a central part of your well-being. At home, you have people you can fall back on, your family is there, your friends are there, you know the systems, etc. Financial security becomes a proxy for all that here when you are migrate. So for me, in the last 12 to 15 months, I went from earning a healthy salary, which allowed me to save some money, not have any credit card debt, plan for holidays, etc., all of that to earning to almost about 10 to 15 percent of what I was earning. It's just a major crash, you know, from what I was earning to thing. And I think we don't talk enough about this. So that's why I'm very keen to openly say that it yes. is hard, you know, when it happens. But I also, like I said, my husband has a regular job. He's in the NHS frontline. So he was obviously working through the pandemic. Mm. He didn't work from home. He was going to the hospital every day. But our savings has gone to zero now in the last one year. So we had to even, you know, between us, consciously say it is okay to not have savings for some time. And that's quite hard. I have a credit card, which is not much, but I have a credit card debt. I managed to get a loan from the government, which I never thought I would do because debt is bad. Now, that's how I was bought up by my family. And now suddenly I have a, a few thousand pounds debt, not major, but even that brings up a lot of anxiety in me. You know, it's like, oh my God, when will I start doing this? What am I doing? Am I, I can just go back to the startup world. I'll easily get a job, you know, mm -hmm. and attraction is so high, you know, for yes. that, that certainty. It's really, really high to even reframe that aspect of worthiness, which I again keep coming back to an abundance, like, you know, the scarcity mindset and the abundance mindset is something which really appeals to me a lot in the sense that when we say that people who have far less money are much happier, it really is about the mindset in some ways, about how you view a certain thing, like loss and gain and things like that. So I think it's the internal work, which is the biggest challenge for me in the last year or so, is the it's a constant bombardment from the external media, 
and from your network of friends who are basically still in regular jobs about what abundance looks like yes. and just saying actually my abundance is going to be to visit a friend over summer in the UK I can't go let's say I can't go to Porto to visit Patricia for instance right mm -hmm. and that's fine I think that is something which has been it's a daily work Sarah and let me be honest about it because uh, I would love to have a proper salary coming every month I understand that quite well at least I can I can frame it in my own reality and I love what you just said like what kind of abundance do you want and what is abundance for you yes because for me the fact that I have absolute control I will, well not, no one has absolute control but I have a lot more control over my time than most people that is abundance for me yes the fact that I can after lunch decide actually I feel a bit sleepy I'm going to take a nap mm. or actually it's sunny I feel like going outside for a walk I can do that and no one is controlling my time that is so important for me that when I have those moments I also have those moments trash me when I'm like I could just get a job yes and yes life would be so much easier yeah and then, <laughs> and then I think no if I have a job <laughs> yeah doing all of these things will become more difficult not impossible but difficult and I'll have to ask someone to take these off hell no I don't want that I I I want to control my rest. That is abundance for me. Yes, exactly. And I think the abundance is also time for me personally. Like I was working, like how I was working crazy hours. Of course, I used to have time with my child, who's also Sarah, by the way, you know, yeah. kind of. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, so she, you know, it would, it would be, but it was very, you know, it was all fixated on the weekends mainly. Or some days when I would work from home, I would have some quiet time with her in the evenings. But now, especially through the pandemic, when she has also had to face, you know, school closures and things like that, it was just easier to be with her. I did not have to feel guilty about, oh my God, I should be on that meeting or I'm not on that meeting, etc. Once I made that conscious decision, okay, there won't be much savings here. I will be a bit in debt and that is fine because it will take time and I will come over it. You listen to podcasts and everything from people who are actually building very businesses very consciously. Mm -hmm. You realize that it takes one to three years to build a sustainable business. So you have to, I have to allow myself, I have to give myself that permission slip to say that, hey, Rashmi, it's fine. You know, you're going to find it hard, but don't give up for at least till you have done two to three years because you can't judge whether this is sustainable or not till you do that. Yes, for sure. Rashmi, before we go, I have a question for you. What is learning? Learning for me is a process of wiring new things, new knowledge, behavior, skills, values, etc. And it's a privilege. If you're able to do that, then it's a big privilege. And life gives us lots of opportunities to learn. So for me, learning is a privilege. It's a process. And actually, the, the work of separating education and learning is central to me now. Education is something you get in a systematic instruction, your school or university. While learning doesn't have to happen in those systematic structures. You can learn knowledge through spending time with somebody else, or you can learn new behaviors and skills and values. I did tell you that my daughter went through some racist attacks over the last year, and I had to learn a whole lot of things about around that. Like, what does race mean? What does racism mean? What does colorism mean? So I think that is a big learning, which actually I was never taught in school or university. I just picked it up here and there. So I think for me, that kind of learning experience of values, etc., is so much more enriching in some ways. And it has to supplement education, which you go to a school for or university for. Yeah, you've shared with me that that was one of the challenges you faced last yeah. year when your daughter was the target of racist comments. How was that experience and what have you learned from that situation as a parent and as a human being? 
Yeah, I think for me, what happened was the first time actually when it happened was just three years. It was somewhere in the outskirts of London, so it was not where we live. And uh, another three-year-old had called her poo, your brown like poo. And I was just like, she came and she was very upset and I regret not really picking it up. So only when we came home, I said, why are you behaving? Like, what's happening? And he said, oh, that boy called me poo. I just said, oh, don't worry about it. What he said was not right, blah, blah. And we just left it at that. But I think last year it was much more targeted because she was in preschool and, you know, there was another white child who was also four years old who called her, you know, you're brown, I don't like brown and things like that. And I think that was just before lockdown. So I couldn't deal with at the preschool. Then we had lockdown. So we are closed for two or three months. And then over the time, that's when I started actually educating myself. And in a weird way, the Black Lives Matter movement really propelled that learning in some ways. I started learning about race, racism. I realized that because my childhood experiences has been as a majority, like all my friends were brown, right? Right. There was no white person at all in my school. But for my daughter, it's the other way around. You know, usually she's the minority. So I had never really processed it. And I think that was a big learning for me. Uh, One, it was also engaging with her, like, you know, getting her, for example, simple things like crayons, which are various shades of brown, you know, or pencils, which are various shades of brown. And then we kind of do it. And also discussing about how white people say white, but she's like, they're not actually white. They're light brown, aren't they? And I'm like, yeah, they are. They look very light brown, but actually we call them white. So it's engaging with that at that level, I think, was huge. And that's when I was had to engage with the colorism. So colorism is where, you know, you have prejudice against people with dark skin tone within your own community. Mm. So within the South Asian community, or let us say within the black community, colorism is when somebody who's of a lighter skin will say that the one who is of the darker skin is not good. And this I have faced numerous times when I was a child in India, where I was the lighter one. And then I had my cousins who were a bit darker. And my grandmother, my grandparents in passing would very casually say, oh, you know, she's not as light as you. So, you know, basically she's not as beautiful as you or things like that. I had not really processed it. I was like, yeah, whatever. But now looking back, I realize, oh my God, that is just wrong, (laughs) you know? So I think that has been a huge learning and empowering her because my first reaction of not talk to the preschool about it when it happened. And I'm not very proud that I, I felt that way. But then I realized because I'm socialized as a woman, don't rock the boat unless really necessary. So you start thinking, oh, can I just manage it at home? You know, can I just tell her that, hey, that child is wrong and it's fine. And then you realize, no, actually, she needs me to stand up for her. And that it's not easy to do that, to kind of go and talk to somebody else and say, hey, this happened. I'm not happy with it. How do we sort it? And so now I've had to do it. It happened even when she joined school. So just before Christmas, it happened again. And I think both times that's what I've learned is that, you know, you it, it, it is a practice. You have to keep challenging people in a very, very compassionate way, almost not in a way which is very aggressive in terms of, you know, trying to fight with people. But just trying to say, hey, this is not right. It's not working for me. Even like last week, she said, oh, I like blonde hair. And then so I was like, oh, that's interesting. You've got brown skin. So I wonder how that will look. And then she was like, oh, God, that doesn't look good at all. I was like, there you go. Blonde hair with brown skin. If you like it, we can do it. You know, you can dye your hair. Like I never said it's wrong. And then she was like, "Mm, actually, no, I think I like my black hair. Okay, great. Yes. So it's these kind of things, which is every day I'm learning something, you know, from her as well. So I think that is learning for me. You know, that is learning, experiential learning of life. And it's a privilege that I, I, I was able to do that for her.
and not shying away from the conversation. And I've been trying to be more active as well and have those conversations with the people around me. And as a white person, really not just staying quiet when a friend makes a racist comment or my parents make a racist comment or someone yeah. from my family make, makes a, a racist comment. But I also must be very honest that I d haven't always done that because... Sometimes I, I freeze. Well, in the past, many times I haven't done that. But lately, uh, I've been trying to be a bit more conscious about it. And I remember a specific situation where a family member made a very racist comment. And I was completely frozen. Mm. And I couldn't say anything. And mm. it was like ingrained in language that sometimes you don't even know how to pick it apart. I'm like, was that, what was he trying to say exactly? And you're so confused. Yes. And then yes. you are at someone else's house and you don't know if that's the right moment to say it and if they will understand it and if like, and it's so hard, it's so hard. And I really appreciate your, your effort as well of having this conversation with a child, which in my mind, probably it's easier, but in my mind, it's more difficult. <laughs> no, it, it is. It's also because it's difficult because not for the talking to the child, because they are really curious, right? They just want to learn. They just don't understand why somebody has a problem because they're brown or black or, you know, things like that. But I think the yeah. difficult bit is actually your own internal prejudice. You know, kind of you, you start thinking about, okay, how many books, black and colored people have I reading? Or how many people from, let us say, non-binary, from the non-binary world am I dealing with on a day-to-day -day yeah. basis? You know, yeah. and I think that is the whole thing is you realize, oh, my God, I am also quite narrow in my thinking, in the way I consume media, in the way I interact with people. So I think that is like a life, lifetime's work. So I am kind of grateful in some ways that the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement kind of had an uptick last year because I think it, the slowing down of the pace of life has allowed me to really engage with it in a meaningful way rather than just getting very annoyed with it or angry with it. Yes, for sure. And it's and it, for me, it's also what you said earlier about talking to other people in a compassionate way. I struggle with that a little bit because I get very aggravated sometimes particularly when it's younger people or young people like people my age I get like why are you saying that like you know better or you should know better you have access to all the information you want in the world yeah and so I get really annoyed so it's then it's a process of calming down and having a conversation and remembering that I am very privileged and very fortunate to have access to that information yes and I know where to get that information I've also started widening my networks, as you said. Yeah. Like, I yeah. might not know anyone that considers themselves non-binary. I don't know anyone in my life. Yeah. But I've started following people on social media so that I understand. Understand, the yeah. Better. Yes. What is the day-to-day -day life of someone who's non-binary and the challenges they face and all of those things. And so I've done that process a little bit. I've started that process. Yeah. And a lot of people around me haven't. And so it's being compassionate to, to understand that it's a process. It's a journey. And if the people around you haven't started that journey, then maybe it's your role to point them in that direction. Then you can't force them. You can't. But you can say, have you considered this? And yeah, being compassionate about it. Yeah, because I always say, I, I feel there are like two C's, you know, two C's to it. So compassionate and curious. So, you know, if you just say, you know, first you go from a compassionate to yourself as well, right? In the sense that this is hard stuff. For for example, in your, in your case, to be white and to see that all this has happened in the past, you feel bad. Oh my God, I didn't stand up for all of this and everything. But if you have compassion for yourself, you're much more open to learning, right? And if I am compassionate to myself saying, hey, just because this happened in my daughter's life doesn't 
mean I'm a bad mother? And then curious. It's like, why did that child say that? And how did that make you feel? And uh, what would you like me to do about it? And you'll be amazed at how four and five-year-olds can actually say, yeah, I want you to talk to my teacher because I didn't like it. So I think the, these kind of things are something which I would just say. So in your case, I would say potentially, like I have done this with some of my friends who make some comments as well, which are not very pleasant. I'll just say, I'm just curious. Why did you say that? That is a start of a conversation where, because once we go into that angry space, then we have already made a judgment. So it's going to be a bloody hard conversation, you know? Yes. So if we just say, hmm, I'm not sure I agree with you. Why did you say that? I'm just curious. And then, then of course, there's a walk away point, right? You just say, okay, I don't agree with you and that's fine. Thank you, Rashmi. That was yes. a, a good conversation and we could keep going. This is a topic that needs a lot more conversation. And I, I hope we spark that curiosity and compassion in others to have those conversations more. <laughs> in that spirit, what question would you like to ask our listeners? So I'm going to be cheeky and say three interconnected questions because it's all to do with learning. I would like to ask the listeners, what would you love to spend time learning if you weren't worried about what others would think? The second question would be, what might open up for you if you do that? And the third would be, what's the first step you can take towards it this week? Wonderful. Rashmi, thank you so much for your time. And thank you. for your energy and for sharing your story with us. Thank you for the opportunity, Sarah. I really, really appreciate it. If you want to get in touch with Rashmi, find out how on the show notes. I would also love to hear from you. Go to learningday.community and reach out. If this episode was useful to you, consider subscribing to Learning Day on your podcast app. And as a little extra, share it with a friend. I don't know where this is going to take us, but I know we're going to learn something along the way. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye.